He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is your host, Siddhartha Vaidyanathan. And um, I'm here today quite excited to be joined by two fine cricket journalists from South Africa, two writers who I've read and admired for many years. Uh, we have uh, Firdos Munda, who is the South Africa correspondent for ESPN Crick Info, and Telford Weiss, who is the South Africa correspondent for Crick Buzz. Thank you so much for joining me, Firdos and Telford. And if I'm not mistaken, the two of you know each other. <laughs> <laughs> Only for about, uh, it's almost 14 years now. We've, we've been married for about 14 years. So <laughs> to each <Small> other. matter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for those. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us, Sid. Yeah, it's a, actually a bit funny, isn't it? Because it's probably the two biggest cricket publications, definitely in India, right? And to yes. have two people in the same house basically producing that content, I think, causes some confusion sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so this is like true power couple here. Crickinfo uh, and Crickbuzz are... <laughs> Uh, really big in India in the online space. So great to have both of you here. And also timing-wise, I mean, we are recording this episode a day after South Africa completed a 3-0 win in the one-day series against India. And that in turn was followed by their 2-1 win in the test series. Uh, quite a remarkable comeback from behind victory. So, uh, you know, for those in Telford on December 31st, if I'd said you'd go through January without South Africa being defeated, what would he have told me? <laughs> See those pigs flying out the window? <laughs> it's quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, what what's the feeling like? Must be great. Definitely. And very motivating after a very difficult two years in South African cricket. And I think a lot of us, and definitely commentary from around the world, was that South Africa is going the same way as West Indies or Zimbabwe. And that's got a racial undertone to it as well, of course. But th- that suggestion is just ridiculous, and I think we can see that now. Um, it's it's the the turnaround has been amazing. You know, we went through a long stage, um, and I think it's it's built on administrative chaos um, in the past three or four years, where things just nothing could go right. Sponsors were walking away, journalist accreditations were revoked, and and it was just bad bad news all the time. Um, and it, it, just the I don't think as as journalists and writers we've got to the bottom of of the turnaround and the kind of metamorphosis of South African cricket has just been incredible. I mean, it's gotten off the floor a few times in the past, but it honestly did look like it had bottomed out this time. And uh, yes, it's going to be interesting getting to the reasons of why they've risen from the ashes. Absolutely. I mean, you you speak about the really tough times and, you know, it's interesting for me. I mean, maybe my viewpoint is different from what you see from there. But despite everything that South Africa have gone through over the last few years and despite the Colpac, uh, play, the players moving away, despite, you know, the uh, some play, uh, many of the uh, the policies that have been put in place in terms of selection and despite everything, I never really saw South Africa in the way that I would have probably seen like a Zimbabwe or a West Indies. Mm. Uh, Because the talent just seems to be so phenomenal. I mean, they just seem to unearth players all the time. Do you see it the same way? Or did you think that there was a real danger of going the Zimbabwe way? 
No, I don't think we ever put a real danger. But to be honest, I think that as long as we've got this private school system in place, there's going to be an unearthing of players. There's a problem with that. There's a massive problem because it's very elite. And so you're getting players from a particular demographic. But um, I think as long as that system is in place and as long as we're getting elite schools to produce players, I mean, they pay, those schools pay their sports coaches more than they pay some of their teachers. So that is telling you where the priorities, especially in men's sport in South Africa, lie. And, you know, that school system is, is just the factory that keeps producing these players. And um, schools will even pay players to come to their school. To, as, as scholars, they'll put them on scholarships and, and whatnot. So it's, it's a mini industry. And I think the, the great danger for South African cricket, or one of the dangers, is that um, we'll become this kind of feeder system to the world's T20 leagues. You know, and, and I've written a piece on this a couple of months ago, actually, about how the scouts are now looking at the South African schools for players to take over to leagues all over the world. So I think that is still, you know, it could be a problem. But while those schools are running, there's probably going to be enough talent uh, to to staff South Africa's professional teams at, at, at international and uh, domestic level. Um, they're just It's an incredible system. And um, yes, as Fadoz was saying, there are problems in that you know, it's 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 those schools are for people with money, and there are scholarships. They do try and look for talent elsewhere, but mostly you're talking about money. So it's it's not a very democratizing exercise. Um, but um, that is the bedrock of 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 how South Africa works. We produce too much talent to to staff our own teams anyway. Um, that's why that's one of the reasons why you have so many South Africans popping up in associate teams and. And the rugby situation is the same. You can't look at a Scotland playing Ireland without a Fandamarva in there somewhere. So it's, um, you know, there's always South Africans. And uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's down to the school system. Phenomenal. I mean, given the number of players that have even moved on to New Zealand uh, to play from South Africa, uh, I think BJ Watling, Neil Wagner, so many of these players. I mean, Colin de Grandhomme, I think maybe he went from Zimbabwe. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the talent is just amazing. Um, which brings me to, you know, given when I was watching this series and then you see the return of players like uh, Olivier, uh, and then you think that now that the Colpac players are going to be back, is this going to be like even that much more better because the talent pool then widens that much more? Players aren't going to leave. Uh, I don't know if Colpac will necessarily have that much of an impact on the current squad because Kyle Abbott was the biggest Colpac name for a really long time. And to be fair, he's not really playing Red Bull cricket in South Africa. The couple of matches that he played this summer, he didn't have great results. And Duan Olafia, though he's the leading wicket taker, uh, I wouldn't say he he shot the lights out in, in the test series. It was, in fact, Lungi Ngidi and Keiji Rabada and Marco Janssen who did so. So, you know, the other Colpac returnees are Simon Harmer. Uh, apart from some of the comments that he's made about race, Keshav Maharaj is standing in his way. You've got George Linda. You've got Bjorn Fortain. So they're going to have to earn their place because that's the way it works. You can't just come back and the door gets thrown open for you. One of the myths of the Colpac situation was that, oh, South Africa are losing their best players. It wasn't true. Yes, there were one or two big signings like Abbott, but mostly there were people who couldn't make it in South Africa um, you know, and, and couldn't get into the national team. When Simon Harmer left, Dane Pitt was, was a better bowler. That's you know one of the reasons why he left. When when Kevin Peterson left, he couldn't get into um, South African teams at domestic level. Um, and I think what happens sometimes, particularly for me in the Kevin Peterson example, 
is that the English system is just so much better resourced in terms of coaching and facilities. And they could find the talent, talent in Kevin Peterson in a way that perhaps the South African system could not. So I think it's a great myth that South Africa lost their best players to Colback because, no, they didn't. They lost the people, mostly, who couldn't get into the side. And, uh, and that's something which doesn't get highlighted often enough. That's true because given the number of teams in the county system, Kevin Peterson would have got a chance to get into a team, get a consistent set of mm. games and sort of establish himself and then become the player that he was. But in South Africa, he might have not even got into a first 11 team, right? Given the number of teams there are. Exactly. And, and, and you're not going to play as much, you know, as you do in England. And you're not going to have those facilities and those coaching um, brains, I suppose. You know, the South African system is impoverished compared to the county system in that regard. It's interesting for those that you brought up, uh, Ingidi, um, you know, in uh, and Janssen and uh, Ravada. Uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me in this series and also, you know, was really heartening to see was how influential uh, the players from all backgrounds were. It wasn't just, um, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, players like Keegan Peterson, Temba really coming into his own as a batsman. Um, you know, Rabada, of course, who's been a great bowler, doesn't really need to prove anything. But then he, you know, after that little period of, uh, you know, up and down, he came back and just bowled so well. And then Ngidi, who, you know, might have might have been like a 50-50 situation selection given Olivia and everything else. But then he comes and does so well. So it's, um, you know, heartening to see from the outside perspective, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think it also is a bit myth-busting in that, you know, we've got a lot of people before the series saying things like Lungi and Kiwi was overweight, unfit, hadn't bowled. And he'd actually, I actually interviewed him just before the series and he'd been doing so much work on his fitness and so much work on getting his bowling loads up. And he actually bowled more overs than anyone else. He played more matches than anyone else. So this narrative of him being unfit, I think, is a little bit outdated. And then someone like a Keegan Peterson, he's had to wait for quite a long time. He was part of the squad when Mark Boucher first took over that 2019-20 summer. But then he couldn't play because Faf Duplessis held the spot. And then only when Faf retired after the Pakistan series, then Peterson got a look in the West Indies. And to be fair, you know, it's been really hard for him because the opening pair have not been scoring runs. So he made the absolute most of the opportunities that he got given in this in this test series. And maybe he's disappointed that he didn't get 100. But I actually don't think we should measure success in South African conditions on hundreds. So the performances of him and Rassi van der Dissen and Temba Bavuma, you know, it might say 40 or 60 or whatever, but it's worth 150 on a flat pitch. Yeah, there's a, I'm working on an interview at the moment, actually, with Keegan Peterson. I interviewed him a few days ago. And I was struck by how just how, and I don't want this to sound ugly, how ordinary he is. He's, you know, there's there's no airs and graces, and there's he's almost a modernist batter. There's no there's no ornamentation. You know, he just he, and 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 his technique is so good, and his temperament is is probably better. And and you know, after everything I've just said about the South African system, you you think for yourself, well, goodness, if it can produce someone like that, then then clearly there's still quality in the way we go about things in cricket here. Um, and, and he's just, like you said, taken his chance um, and, and walked into the series with all sorts of questions all over him and has emerged as the, the, the new batting talent, you know, never mind that he's been around for 10 years in, in domestic cricket and played a lot of it. 
But um, it's it's that kind of thing is really heartening to see. I mean, he comes from a fairly he comes from a cricketing family, but it, they're not rich people, um, and 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 he's found his way through, um, and and that's a it's a really good news story, you know. And um, and has that overcome a few challenges in his in his own life, just in his family's life, to to get where he is, and has held it together, and 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 here he is, playing against some of the world's best bowlers and and scoring runs and hanging tough against them, and. Uh, I'll, I'll stop now, otherwise I'm going to sound like a greeting card or something, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully warm story. But for, uh, you know, cricket country like South Africa, and given the emphasis that South Africa has laid on um, having a representative team, and given the policies they've put in place and all the history that they have, how valuable is it to have a player like Keegan Peterson or Themba Bavuma playing for South Africa, doing so well, getting man of the series? What sort of an impact does that have trickle down going to like, you know, young 10-year-olds watching the sport in, you know, various corners of the country, rural parts of the country? Is that something wh- whose value is that we cannot underestimate at any cost? No, young people in rural areas in the country are not watching the cricket because it's okay. not available uh, on television and that, you know, so their resources are so limited. But I think it has a greater impact on people who are maybe just below middle class or entering the middle class because that's where they can see, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And there you can see a black hero in Timba Bavuma or a person from the, the boyland like Keegan Peterson coming through. So... And that's where it's, it's got a big impact. But the bigger impact actually is that these guys would have been called quota players up until probably New Year's Day, a lot of them. And so when we see them excel, it changes minds about the ability of people of color to play cricket and to excel at cricket. And it also makes a very clear narrative for black excellence, which is something that is long denied in this country and probably beyond these borders as well. So I think that that's the bigger impact. I don't know if it's going to change. You know, we're not going to see loads and loads of black African batters coming through in the next two seasons, maybe in the next 20 years. So it's got a good, it creates this idea that South Africa is now looking more like a South African team, which is in fact the point. It is is a double-edged sword though, because it needs those players to be performing well. Otherwise, the racist of the racists of which we have many um, will just jump on the bandwagon and say, "Look, look what happens!" You know, so they're under all they're under much more pressure than white players um, because they have to perform. Um, I, I tend to call it the Jackie Robinson effect. You know, it wasn't good enough that Jackie Robinson was good enough to play Major League Baseball. He had to be better than anybody else, and and we still that still lingers now. White players are able to ride on their whiteness, really, without being criticised much longer in a side if, they, if they're struggling than black or brown players. They don't have that luxury. And, uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. We, there's this tension that maybe people from other countries can't feel in cricket all the time in this country. Um, it's almost like a piece of black and white string, and it gets pulled this way and that way and this way and that way. And uh, maybe you need to be South African to see it clearly, but that is the reality. Yeah, absolutely. The other, the thing about this series, um, you know, why all this came up when I was watching it as well is because the kind of uh, news and the backdrop against which it's been played. I mean, there has been so much that's been going on in cricket in South Africa, politically, administratively, with the board and the chaos and 
on all that. And, you know, with the BLM movement, the taking of the knee, and to to have, like, this series come through suddenly. I mean, it's it's such an inspiring sort of event to have people talking about cricket and players and cricketers, um, you know, for, like, this brief time. Not that the other issues aren't important, but just to see, like, the team, uh, the the sort of the cricketing aspect of the team being highlighted uh, so much more. That that occasionally has its heartening moments, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's good to see dramatic cricket and, and, and good cricket, and it doesn't hurt when, you know, the, a team which has uh, had its detractors and is not very well trusted in its own country plays well in its own country against a very strong opponent. You know, and a very strong opponent led by a man who just divides opinion all over the place or, or was led by a man who divides opinion all over the place. So, you know, you, you could, whatever you think about Vera Kohli, you can't ignore it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of figure. So I think it was, it, it, it was a very powerful, very powerful script. But even in that, there's, there's the politics of even that is, is, is it's there because, of course, this, this South African team is captained by Dean Elgar, the test team, and, and, and coached by Mark Boucher. And for a lot of South Africans, they look at them and they see two unreconstructed white people uh, and, and, and they don't like it. So there's a tension there as well. And believe me, the, the, I'm not saying they're un, unreconstructed white people, but we have many unreconstructed white people and they look at Dean Elgar and Mark Boucher and see heroes and look what they do when they're leading the cricket team. So it's, you know, you can't get away from this thing. Um, racism is the it's not the shark it's the water and 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 it's the water in which we swim so it's uh, it's yes sometimes we just we look at a cricket match and all we see is a cricket match but it's difficult to do that as a south african it's because it's not only a cricket match it's a whole lot of other things as well but yes it was good to see a team come good bowlers bowl properly batters bat properly captains captain properly coaches coach properly you know so it's everything happened and sometimes the pieces do snap neatly into place and with a lot of hard work and luck and skill that's what happened for South Africa in this series. Firdos, I read uh, all the pieces that you wrote especially through, through the test series um, and even before that with all the SJN hearings and things but we'll, which we'll get to uh, but one of the things that I sort of noticed one of the pieces that I really enjoyed was um, you know in the first test which South Africa lost uh, how empathetic you were towards the players and their batting and how you mentioned how this is a team that, you know, we have to view with certain expectations and not necessarily, you know, pile on them at every given opportunity. Um, just talk to me about that, about, you know, following a team and then setting setting expectations for the viewers, you know, through your writing. Yeah, thanks. And I appreciate that because I think that too much of what we do can veer into the extreme. So when a team wins, it becomes that they're the best team ever. And when a team loses, it becomes that they're the worst team ever. Whereas in fact, there's a lot of gray areas in between and a huge amount of nuance that needs to be considered. And this batting lineup really didn't have a lot of experience. So Rassi van der Dussen had only played a dozen test matches. Uh, Aiden Markram has come off some really terrible form. Keegan Peterson hadn't played much. The rest of them hadn't played Red Bull cricket for six months. And so I'm not saying that that's an excuse for them underperforming. But in fact, where they went wrong was conceding 270 on the first day. And that had nothing to do with any of the people that I mentioned. But at the same time, you know, how hard can you be on them? The Indian attack was incredible. It's the best 
Pace Attack India have ever brought to these shores. So you've got to give credit there as well and see that, you know, some of those deliveries were completely unplayable. Anybody would have got out to them. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it was that I always think we knew in South African cricket, this rebuild is going to take time. To be honest, I thought it would take a little bit longer than this. But once we can see, okay, we've got the little seeds there. You know, Rassi van der has got great temperament. Keegan Peterson's got great technique. I don't think you can blast those guys. And also, who are you going to replace them with? Because you look around the domestic system, I can't pick out that many names at the moment. They also need time. Uh, in writing a piece on, on Dean Elgar before the series, what I discovered was that in every year since Dean Elgar's debut in 2012, a big-name player had retired. So you had... Uh, Callis in 2013 and Smith in 2014, and now we don't have to go through all of them. But basically, in the 10 years that Algar has been an international cricketer, South Africa have lost a whole team, 14 big-name players. That's massive. You know, you don't recover from that just in a season or two. It probably is going to take four or five years. And so maybe we're only halfway there, and they're still going to lose. Uh, you know, they're going to maybe go to New Zealand and lose. Maybe Bangladesh springs a surprise. Uh, I don't know about England. I think England are the worst of the worst. So let, let, let's say South Africa will go to England and beat them. You know, but then they go to Australia. It's going to be difficult. They are going to lose. This team's not going to win every game they play. That that would also be boring, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then and then you won't know what to do. Then you you two will be like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and and the other thing that can't be easy for the players is everything that's going on i mean obviously you know they are they will say that they are focused on the cricket and they are looking at uh, the, controlling the controllables or whatever other things that people say but you know there are things happening every day off the field and even even within the team like you know the classic kneeling situation um mm-hmm. you know with uh, you know some players uh, not uh, not taking the knee some players doing like the half knee some players doing the whole knee why you have to explain this to me why in a country like south africa of all the cricketing nations in the world given the history and given what is happening why is this even negotiable why aren't why isn't everyone just kneeling full stop because we're still in our we're still in our racist moment you know racism is not dead simply because apartheid is dead um all apartheid did was take the laws off the books but we still live in that racist society every day and I can say that easily as a, as a white person. I, I can't imagine what it's like for a black or a brown person to live in South Africa today because not nearly enough has changed. So, yes, people will look at us and go, for goodness sake, you know, but you of all countries. But you can't compare us. Well, it's been a different. We didn't lose a war or the white people in South Africa didn't lose a war. So it's not like Nazi Germany. Where, and, and, and there's been a conscious rewriting of, of history. And now, you know, Germany is this amazing place of, of, of tolerance, never mind the rising right wing. But in South Africa, we are still in that moment. It's, it's not that long. It's only 30 years, you know, since, since the end of uh, official end of apartheid. And still, if you come here now, there's still white people still have most of the money. Black people still struggle for jobs. It's, it's, those realities have not changed. Um, and 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 I think that's why we're still in that moment. Um, yes, it would be wonderful if everybody could see, for goodness sake, you are South Africans, you should do this. You of all people should do this. And there are a lot of people who will agree with that and think that way. But then there's a lot of people who won't. And, you know, unfortunately, cricket seems to be lumped with a lot of those people. And, and, and But that's essentially why I think we're still in that moment. We're not, we're not out of the woods by a long way. What we have 
not yet got over in South Africa and which I, which I actually, to be honest, I don't think the world has got over it. I think they just hide it really well is that there is still a huge sense of entitlement to resources, to, to the best of everything by one group of people. And then a huge anger and, and a rising anger now by the rest of us. And I think that that is not going to go away I don't know. I mean, look at the legacy of colonialism. Look at what it's the legacy of slavery in the US. You know, you can't tell me that's going to go away in our lifetimes, which is a slightly depressing thought. But I mean, even in the lifetimes of two or three generations below us. And I just think in South Africa, because we've just come through it, you know, in my lifetime, this was reality. uh, It means that it's much more raw and it's much more close to the surface. So you don't have to scratch that far to find extremely racist people, to find extremely racist thought. But I also don't think that not taking a knee or even grappling with whether you should take a knee necessarily makes you extremely racist or even racist. I just think part of it. So there's one school of thought about, especially the Afrikaans guys who didn't want to take the knee, that their church had told them that you can only kneel before God. And this is a very common story that's going around the Afrikaans community. And it's easily disputable because you can think of a hundred other reasons that you kneel, not least most of these guys when they're proposing to a partner, but also other stupid reasons like tying a shoelace. And they're fine with doing that. So that, you know, and and I think there's also then this community that they're part of, and it becomes difficult then to go against the church and against the community and have to explain yourself and be seen as a sellout. So that was one argument that came through around not taking the knee. But the other one, right at the beginning, it might not have even been the beginning, when South Africa decided they would raise their fists against Sri Lanka and the Black Power salute, and we all thought it was quite pathetic and it looked rather pathetic, was that must there only be one way of demonstrating anti-racism? And I do I do think still that the South African national team, cricket, rugby, football, if we have to put out a flipping darts team, they must all take a knee. But I, you know, I don't think it can be prescribed to them. And I also think if they choose not to and they say that our way of demonstrating anti-racism is whatever – then we have to let them do whatever because also enshrined in this constitution is freedom of expression. So, you know, we, we're having to now tread this line of you can't say you only by taking a knee are you showing support for anti-racism. There must be many other ways of doing it and we should embrace all of them. But also taking a knee is a very small one second thing to do that doesn't actually hurt anyone. So actually you should do it. Yeah, I mean, Telford, your point is obviously totally well taken about how the country is still a long way to go and and things aren't uh, you know certain things didn't just suddenly change overnight when apartheid went away uh, as a you know a formal uh, institutional sort of uh, process but when you're playing in a team uh, with players of various other backgrounds in there and when in fact you uh, you know your t- own teammates who you're sharing a dressing room with are people you know for whom this whole movement is fighting for, uh, I would think that that sense of camaraderie and fraternity would at least kick in at that point of time. But it seems that even within that setup is that complexity, right, of uh, not of not or or not being able to connect the dots there. I would think so also that it should kick in, and if you know, for goodness' sake, it's it's a small thing, but it's also been you know we have that whole. BLM is a Marxist movement. You know, we've had that kind of nonsense flying around, and we're not a country that's short on conspiracy theories. So, you know, you you have that coming into it, and it gets bent out of shape and and moved this way and that way. And we also need to be honest about most cricketers um, will come from they don't they're not terribly thinking people. 
you know, they're, they're basically in, certainly in the South African firmament. They, they believe what they're told and they follow their their prejudices and 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 good and bad, if you like, you know. And 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 they are quite simple people um, in 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 those ways and easily be easily malleable and, and and pushed in the wrong as well as the right direction. So I'm not trying to make excuses for them. It's that that is the reality, you know. Um, Someone like Quinton de Kock is, is 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 a very complex person at a lot of levels, um, you know. But at other levels, he's 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 a very simple person, um, and and I think, that, you know, that that's not very worldly. Uh, South African cricketers, they, they they easily fall into pitfalls and and things like that. So, and I think that has happened at individual levels. But then you find somebody like Rasi Fanadison, whose father was in the ANC, who's as Afrikaans as you can get. Um, I mean, he's he's uh, the song he walks into. If you're unfortunate enough to hear it, is is, is a song called Biotica, um, by, and it, which basically means biology and whatnot. And it's by a, a band called I'm not sure if you can swear on this podcast, but the band is called Fuck of Police Car, which so, means what it sounds like, Fuck of Police Car, you know. And it's a kind of punky Afrikaans band. And and this is and you've got you know. Kunda de Kock and Rassi van Edissen, who are so different and so similar, and they're all in the same team. And then you have somebody who seems to, you know, all he does is think all day, except he plays cricket as well, like Temba Bavuma, who's thoughtful and deep and all these things. And you've got to chuck all that together. And I'm sure all teams have these kind of differences, but they do seem exacerbated in the South African situation because of the very, you know, starkly different backgrounds that people come from. In some ways, it's a miracle that they can all get in a get in a field and, and play together. But um, yes, I mean, I I struggle to understand why it is so difficult to simply take a knee. No, you're not going to hurt anything, you know. Besides, maybe your knee if you if you become old and frail. But it's it's so difficult. But then I I balance that with well, why are people demanding that that's the only way to do this? And rugby is an interesting example. They they had a whole program of anti-racism before BLM became as big as it is. And so when, when BLM knocked on their door and said, well, why aren't you guys taking a knee? They said, well, this is what we've been doing for three years. You know, and, and, and there is this concrete things that they're doing. So they, they don't take a knee and people will criticize them for it, but um, they are doing a lot. And, they, uh, and it's real things beyond just politics. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a debate which I'm sure will run, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up uh, Temba Bavuma uh, because uh, one of the memorable moments for me over the last year was Temba Bavuma's reaction to, you know, Quinton de Kock not taking the knee and him being left out of the side and things. And that was, there was something so uh, sort of nuanced and deep about a captain sitting at a post-match press conference. And it's almost like he had thought so deeply about it and then distilled all his thoughts and it was coming out, even though it was probably much more spontaneous than that. Um, so when you see something like that, is does that does that give you hope? Does that give you, what does, what does that sort of, uh, how does that speak to you when you see a player like Bavuma sit there and sort of reason out this whole point of view, bringing in all these aspects into play and then saying, you know, each one makes their own decision. It must speak to you, right? Like, like a cricket writer and sports writer listening to that. I, I want to just say that I feel deeply, uh, deep respect, but also very sorry for Temba Bavuma because I think it must be incredibly difficult 
trying to captain a team that actually very few people thought he should be the captain of. Temba came up as a red ball cricketer and was then named the white ball captain, even though he is quite a good white ball player, as we've seen. And so there's that, first of all. Then he hasn't scored a test hundred in six years or a second test hundred in that period of time. He's only just brought up a second one day international hundred. So there's pressure to score runs. And then you've got all these things happening, you know, every time. South Africa embark on a major tournament or big series, something happens. So at the World Cup, it was the board mandate to take a knee. During this India series was the uh, the news of Mark Boucher being charged with gross misconduct. And Tembo is the one who has to come and answer questions about it. So the way that he holds it together and the, the choice of words that Temba delivers, and you can clearly see he's thinking about his answers. You can clearly see that he's learned how to straddle that divide between the team and the public and probably the different groups within the team as well, because he didn't he didn't blast Quinton de Kock. In fact, he said, we will support Quinton de Kock in his decision, whereas most of the country was saying the opposite. And, and even yesterday, when asked about Mark Boucher's situation in a sort of roundabout way, he... he he made it clear that things have been difficult for team management, which makes it difficult for players, but also that it's a challenge that he quite enjoys. I think this is just a really good guy who has probably got a future in politics and and who, who we should just hold in very high regard, even if he never scores another 100 again. Fridos, did I, you just um, say a really good guy who has a future in <laughs> politics? <laughs> I did, actually. Hey, that doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> Yes, Alfred. Um, there was a moment during South Africa's tour of England in 2019. Like the years fly by, but um, but yeah. uh, and I was I was inter- interviewing Temba, um, which was at the Oval actually, just on the side of the ground, and there was such a poignant moment because it, there was this like little awkwardness, like are we going to talk about politics or are we going to talk about cricket? And um, and and before we could decide this, he kind of sighed and said. Maybe one day we'll only talk about cricket, and it was, it was a, there was a very. I felt quite sorry for him in that moment. Like you know, he's always, he's always comes with this other stuff. You know, we, we don't seem to be able to look at Temba and see simply a cricketer, um, and and that's unfair on him. You know, it really is, and 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 also because he's become kind of the conscience of the team. You know, whoever's done the wrong thing or done the right thing, he's 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 the one who's got to come and explain this better than anyone else. So. There's a he's a small guy physically, but my goodness, he's a giant, and um, it's it's that's essentially how I see him. I, I don't see a small guy; I see a giant when I see Temba Vuvuma. Absolutely, and and for those, just to sort of uh, complete that point where you said, uh, can you can you give me an idea of the majority viewpoint on this? I mean, I'm imagining that the majority viewpoint in South Africa is that everyone should kneel, right? Uh, or or are there enough people who are willing to say, willing to understand the complexities of this whole situation? Okay, there are definitely not enough people willing to understand the complexities. I think <laughs> that we can say with confidence. In terms of the majority view, as a minority group South African, I don't know if I'm the right person to be asking the question to, you know, and, and I think that that really speaks to the, to the bigger issue in that uh, we, we've got a divide in this country now, which has split what used to be the black racial groups. You know, I grew up as as black and then one day was told, no, now, now you are generic black and then there's black African. And I respect that and I understand that because we know that our black African uh, countrymen were definitely the most oppressed and, and, you know, deserve the most if there are reparations or if there are any kind of programs to sort of make up for this these horrors that were inflicted on all of us. I, I, I don't know what the majority view is from that perspective 
I think from <laughs> from social media because we also haven't been interacting very much through the pandemic that people want the team to kneel and that there is a small minority right wing mostly white mostly marxist verse you know those type and and they're quite an old guard i think who don't want the team to kneel but but they are quite vocal and they are quite and and they have the means to be vocal because they're the ones with the internet connections and the social media and all of those things yeah probably if i had to take a guess i'd say the majority of the country wants the team to kneel but at the same time they don't ask the springboks to kneel so you know i then i don't know actually I, i think the majority of the country wants the other issues in this country sorted out <laughs> okay that that's that's an interesting <laughs> point <laughs> yeah um talking about other issues uh one of the things of course that has been you know hanging over uh, sort of going on for a while and sort of uh hanging over several series that south africa play are the sjn hearings that have been happening which is the social justice and nation building hearings uh you know this uh sort of if i'm not mistaken this the, this was kickstarted by the whole george floyd uh and the michael holding uh, speech in the cricket and things i mean was there uh, correct me if i'm wrong but was there an did this was there a spur for this movement before that or was this pretty much the starting point um it it i think it, well well there was a kind of confluence of things or collision of the george floyd um the murder of george floyd and um south africa one of their independent directors um was a woman called eugenia kalu amayo and you know she she got a lot wrong and in fact she was part of the board that resigned in disgrace um and has been replaced now by a, a majority independent board she was a very divisive figure she was controversial she got the wrong end of the stick a lot of the time and she made a lot of noise but perhaps her only achievement um at as a director at cricket south africa was to push through the establishment um of of the sjn um and she has to be commended for that you know the, her motives and the way she did things you know, i'm not so sure about that but the fact that she got this thing going um you know was was is very very good um it's 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 her only legacy of cricket and you know there was george floyd there was eugenia there was um 31 former black or black former cricketers and coaches signed you know a, a document saying that they had been victims of racial abuse all this all this happened at around the same time and it was it, it it's a spark that became a fire and a very necessary fire um in 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 the in the way that we've done things and now yes it's we are at a moment now what do we do from here with uh, what the sjn you know uncovered and and made roar again for some people but you know for, for a lot of those people it was the first time they were able to tell their stories at that at that kind of level and for me i think that's right now that's the the valuable thing about the sjn um i think the report uh, i think was was terrible actually um there's no real recommendations in there um and and they, they basically the sjn passed the buck back to csa to do something about it so there were problems but i think the process and 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 the and the just the way that people were able to talk about things you know probably for the first time in their lives at that level and in that sort of openness was 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 brilliant that was much needed if i'm not mistaken uh, eugenia who you spoke about was just around there for 6 months or something right like really short time for, yeah she wasn't there for very long and uh, you know she left a trail of of controversy and 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 destruction actually 
Um, but um, she, she was not a very good director. Um, but she, you know, she did give us, she did give cricket the Australian. And for that, she does need to, she must take the credit. Um, you know, for, you've covered cricket for uh, a long time, Telford. Uh, why do you think that it needed a moment like this, you know, a global sort of uh, uh, awareness and a moment like this for South African cricket to sort of initiate such a process? Because the country has had its own share of social justice uh, movements and hearings and before the most famous, perhaps the most famous hearings in the main modern history was in South Africa with the Reconciliation Commission and things. But what do you think is the reason why cricket and cricketers never really sort of uh, opened up for these these matters? I think part of the answer to that is that the, the Truth, and Reconciliation, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, didn't achieve very much. You know, it's hailed the world over as this wonderful thing, but what has it done for the victims of apartheid? Not a lot. Um, you know, one or two people have gone to jail, but you know, if you if you've had your legs shot off by uh, an apartheid assassin, uh, how does that help you? You know, you may get some money out of it, and those kinds of things. And I think South Africans have just become kind of numbed to the inequality. And, and, and numb to the unfairness of it all in, in a lot of ways. And, and, and so just kind of got on with it. And, and, and that happened in cricket as much as anywhere else. And, and when George Floyd happened, you know, uh, I think that it's, it's, maybe there was a kind of global unity or a feeling of it's not only us, it's not only South Africans. This is our moment as, as, as black people to, to do something about this. And I think there was a certain sweeping up of cricket in that whole moment. Um, which, or in that whole movement, um, which was wonderful to see. And I think it was a real kind of new dawn for South African cricket in that sense. Um, and and I, honestly, I think people are just beaten down and tired and, and, uh, and you're just trying to earn a crust, for goodness sake, you know, in, in cricket as a coach or a player. And so you put your head on and you get on with it. But then these things do come along and, 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 so, and somehow the, the scab is ripped off. And, and, and I think there was a lot of, you know, gathering of force and power and 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 the moment came and and cricketers took it and people in cricket took it and and good for them yeah you know what i was thinking initially was that because cricket was and rugby were were held as the kind of property of the white elite for such a long time i don't think anybody saw a need for there to be a a, a social justice reconciliation hearing or, or any kind of admission that you know maybe we did this wrong and and let's be very clear that those types of things especially those two sports and you know a few other things in this country were almost like left to be like run in any kind of way almost like to pacify a white elite at some point and I, and I think you know Nelson Mandela did a lot for sport but I think that was one of the things that he got wrong was that he was sort of like okay we want all these other things and to be fair it's just sport like okay, let them have it because we're busy trying to fix a country here. And so I think that the mindsets, and I mean, if you look at what happened when SACOS, the, the old board, which was the, the non-white groups of people playing together. So we had an African board and an Indian board and a colored board, and then they formed a unified board of color. If you look at what happened when when unity happened with, with SACOS and what then became the UCB, it was never an equal split. It was always that the old South African Cricket Association held most of the power. Their players came through. I mean, just go back to 91. We took a Hussein Manak and a Faik Davids as development players. These were grown men who played lots of league cricket in England, who played lots of years of board cricket. They didn't need to be development players. It's so 
demoralizing, dehumanizing in a sense, patronizing. So I think that that's one of the reasons we haven't had an SJN before. And then I also think the the catalyst with especially England and West Indies and Michael Holding speaking, and it became a conversation in, dare I say it, the white world. And so then I think South African cricket was like, oh, okay, hang on. Other people are also talking about this. Well, I guess we'd better join in, especially when you heard Australia who and Cricket South Africa love to do everything Cricket Australia do. So when you could hear noises coming from other parts of, of, of the cricketing world saying, okay, let's also look at our own issues. Let's also look at the way we're handling race and minorities and so on. Of course, bear in mind that black Africans are not a minority in this country, but a minority in professional cricket by design. So I, I think that that's maybe why. And I think it's been a very helpful process. Things have, have obviously been done incorrectly, but you know it wouldn't be life if it wasn't. And and the process itself, if we ran it in every institution in this country, not just rugby, not just sport, but you know, b- big big companies who you'll find there's a lot of this subliminal stuff. You know, managers treating people a certain way, um, people being not considered good enough for their jobs. We could run one on gender. We could run one on trans rights. There's a lot that we need to socially make just again. The one thing as an outsider that strikes me about reconciliation, though, is the sheer power of the the quality and of the emotion to to be able to have that ability to reconcile. And I think that, you know, to have a hearing set of hearings like this and to have players actually come out in the open and talk about it and to have other players then reflect on it. There is a certain sort of, um, there's a certain power in that in itself, um, I would think. And um, given that, uh, I, I understand the 90s were probably not the best decade for that, but, you know, I would I would have imagined something like this to have happened, uh, say, in the two, sometime in the last 10 years or so, but I'm glad it's happened now. So uh, good for that. But, Talk a bit about the process itself. I mean, uh, having, you know, seen how it all came about and then having sat through the hearings and seen all the testimonies, were you, what was it that you were, that sort of struck you? Was it, was there hope or was there a bit of, uh, you know, things could have been better? What, what, tell me about what you felt watching all the whole process. One of my concerns is that people were allowed to, submit testimony or request to testify. And so nobody was compelled to, and I mean, nobody should be compelled to do anything. But we lost a lot of big name voices and massive absentees for me were Makai Antini, who'd been very vocal in the media, Vernon Philander, arguably the most successful colored cricketer for South Africa, bowler, if we're going to talk about Herschel as well. Herschel, now that I've mentioned him, Hashi Mamla, definitely the most successful South African cricketer of Indian heritage. And we didn't hear from them. And these guys were part of big teams, they won big series, you know, they were an integral part of the setup. And I think missing them really left a lot of the story unanswered. Then from watching the live hearings, and, you know, we reported on the players, especially for for the audiences that we have, who people would know. So I didn't report on necessarily XYZ from a small club in Kailicho who's coming to talk about not having resources or whatever. But, you know, there was lots of testimony like that. I think talking really helped them. And I think we could see that with Paul Adams, who you could see when Paul Adams was testifying that he was also processing. And when he said, you know, I didn't even think this was racist. But then my girlfriend came to me and said to me, hey, why do they call you that nickname? And then I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, he, he so I think it was cathartic for him. I don't think it's going to be anymore because he's going to have to go and testify at uh, Mark Barcher's disciplinary hearing. But 
I think there's a value, as you said, to telling your story and not just to telling your story. There's a value to being heard because often, you know, you're talking, you're saying this, that, and the other, but it's not necessarily that that you feel that someone's actually listening to what you're saying, valuing what you're saying, and maybe even recording your story. So many of these stories were, were completely lost. There was a female cricketer who testified about being completely sidelined. And this was long before women's cricket was professional in this country, long before it was even thought of as a thing. And she cried and it was very heartfelt. It wasn't even addressed in the in the report really, which was very disappointing. So I think the intention of the process was great. I think if there was a way to get some of the bigger names to come and testify, that would have been excellent. I think not having responses from some of the bigger names, Boucher, Graham Smith, A.B. de Villiers come to mind, also made the process a little bit, uh, undermined the process a little bit. And then finally, I think that just giving people the space to, to say something was valuable, but how that stuff has been interpreted, unfortunately, I, I don't think it's hit the mark. In South Africa, um, cricket is seen as part of whiteness. It still is. I think probably in the same way that cricket was seen in, in, in Asia until a few decades ago, you know, as this British colonial white thing. We still have that. And so whenever somebody who's not white excels at cricket, they've kind of passed the test. You know, they've passed a test. And not, that doesn't make them white, but they've become acceptable to whiteness. Um, Ravada is, is a prime example. Um, and, and, and so I think what the SJN did was that it, it, it took that away. It took the whiteness away. There was not this filter of whiteness. You, you were a black or a brown person and you were telling your story of, of racial abuse through cricket. So the cricket was almost secondary and, 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 and the race of it was, take, you, weren't, you didn't have to be acceptable to white people to, to testify and tell your story to the SJN. And I think that was, you know, for once white people, shut up and listen, you know, and, 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 and this, is, you, this is not your game. And this is this is part of everyone's reality. And I think, for me, as as I'm trying to be a thinking white person, um, I never thought cricket is a white game. But I hope that other white people could see that from there. You know that that you don't need to be acceptable to whiteness to be part of cricket. And I think that was hope. I hope that that was a val- a lesson that a lot of white people took from it. Yeah, I mean, uh, what struck me was that a player like. Nikai Nitini, who is such a you know a torchbearer almost uh, and such a valuable part of that South, the so many South African teams that played back then, if he were to bring up uh, what you know aspects of needing to sort of run to the ground because he didn't want to travel in the bus, so many years after that, uh, I mean it it leaves you quite your mind quite boggled, doesn't it? Absolutely. That was a mind-boggling, you know, moment of the whole thing. And of course, that did not happen at the SJN. That happened before the SJN hearings was Makai's story coming out. And I share Fedoza's disappointment. You know, it would have been so much more powerful and, and just so much more, there would have been much more unity in the whole story if, if Makai did testify at the SJN. Even if he said the same things, it's fine. You know, and, and there would have been more. And those, the other players she mentioned, you know, those are, those are big name players. Um, I don't know. There is a school of thought. Maybe they just want to get on with their lives. But it's it's not. You have a responsibility to try and leave, you know, the game in a better place. And, and the SJN was an opportunity to, to do that. And it's it is disappointing that they didn't take it. Um, so yes, but 
you know, there was a lot of noise before the SJN and a lot of talk and a lot of like Makaya kind of interviews and those kinds of things. So that was part of, I think, the the momentum that resulted in in the SJN. But yes, it, it's uh, it's 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 a it's still a strange time because, of course, we're we're still working through the SJN stuff, and uh, I'm not sure where it goes from here, actually. For those, what can you talk a bit about your reaction to the Makaya thing? Was it did it leave you quite astonished? No. Yes and no. Uh, I think what we have not realized about Makaya is that. Makaya was one of those, I mean, we probably realized this part, who was taken out of a township and schooled at an elite institution. He couldn't even speak English, right? So Makaya and Nancy Haywood, one couldn't, one only spoke Afrikaans, one only spoke Isikosa, they couldn't even speak to each other. It was like a real funny thing that was going on there. But Makaya was always the other. So when he was taken out of this township and put in that school, he knew that he had to find ways to fit in. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to compare myself with Makaya, but being, I was the only child of color when I started at school. You learn these little mechanisms, you change your accent, you hide your lunch, you don't tell people about your culture, you don't tell them about the clothing your mom wears because it's embarrassing and because you are the only one that is is, is different. Everybody else is doing things in this, what they consider normal, which is basically whiteness. And I think Makaya really was able to construct a character based on that. And he spent his career doing that. And I mean, I remember speaking to Makaya many times, interviewing him, and, and often he would be very like, um, not really wanting to speak, but once we found a, a connection point and once he saw what it was that I was trying to get at and that I wasn't going to quote him verbatim because that would be not fair because, I, you know, that English is not his first language. And so I'm kind of listening to his quotes and asking him, is this what you mean? And then kind of coming to some conclusion that we're both happy with. And then he kind of opened up. So I think that we must understand that Makaya carries a lot of racial trauma, which is this is maybe his way of addressing it. I don't know why he didn't testify at the SJN. Uh, I was disappointed that he appeared on major media sources. Although there was a lot of hurt, which I think he needed to get out, I think it would have been really good. And I think the advocate, Jimmy Sensabeza, actually said so, that Makaya would have been excellent to testify there. So I'm not actually shocked that Makaya was treated in that way. I, it is shocking. Uh, but I, I think you know, here is a person who is so other coming into this environment, trying his best to fit in, and he just doesn't. And, you know, he told Michael holding that story about going down to breakfast and sitting at a table and another guy would come and go sit at another table. It's because there's not an, a way of understanding how to interact with this very other person in your space. And that's what, what I actually think has changed now. Uh, you know, we don't see them anymore. Obviously, we haven't for a long time. We don't know what they're doing at their breakfast tables. But if you just get a sense of the way they talk about each other and kind of what from what you can see or if you look a bit on their social media. I think now because they're all kind of middle class and they all, you know, it's a problem in itself because now we're just creating a new sense of division. But I think a, a Kahisa Rabada is not so different to a Faf Duplessis. They're both interested in very similar things because the, the class is the same. So I think we have to understand that about Makaya and understand that him being othered was shocking, but yeah, I, I'm not shocked about it. Uh, the the process of the hearings itself, uh, do you think that uh, that could have been a little different? Because as far as I understood, and again, you can correct me, there was no sort of cross-examination or anything, right? It was basically the players uh, saying their piece, and that was it. Was, uh, was there any kind of uh, back and forth at any point? Yeah, exactly. So I think just from having watched a lot of them, the issue came in with there were two legal assistants to the advocate who came from a, a big law firm in this country. 
it was their job not really to cross-examine, but just to sometimes like throw a little bait in there and ask something. And if you go back and listen to a lot of the questions that were asked, they they centered on two or three main figures. So AB came up a lot, Boucher came up a lot, Graham Smith came up a lot. Uh, and they would ask, you know, who was the coach at the time? Who was the captain at the time? That, those sorts of questions. Um, Sandile July, who was one of the assistants, I think was quite aggressive. Probably, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but his questions, particularly to storylines, I think that that didn't that that came from an elite perspective or that he thought came from an elite perspective. I think there his questions were quite aggressive, and definitely, I think maybe cross examination is too strong a word because I think if you're trying to process what is essentially race based trauma, you don't want to re-traumatize someone by poking holes in their story, and and also understand that memory changes, you know, you might remember something like was like this two years ago, but actually it was slightly different. And now your brain has kind of fictionalized it into something else. So it's very difficult then when someone gaslights you and says, oh, are you sure it wasn't like that? I don't think that would have been a helpful process. But I do think guys like the match fixers, who I know I said I didn't want to talk about, you know, their stories were completely blown out of the water when David Becker and Louis Cole came and spent two days playing these videos of them meeting with bookies. And it was just such a waste of time. It was interesting, but that wasn't the purpose of this thing. So for their cross-examination to a degree, I almost want to just make my own term, soft cross-examination, I think would have been welcome. And I, I do think that was missing from these hearings. Yeah, I agree. I think cross-examination is too, uh, is not an apt word, but yeah, something more like uh, just a back and forth uh, to some degree. Uh, do you think Telford would have helped? It it might have done. Um, it, there were a few strange things about the SJN in this regard, and and one of them was that Dumisa Sabeza was clearly not much of a cricket person, um, which which is a strength and a weakness because he comes without any kind of you know attachments and, and connections, but also then needed very basic things explained to him. About about the game, so that that was just made it laborious in a lot of ways, and yes, a, a more of a back and forth, I think could have helped. Um, but I take Fedoza's point that you know if somebody's talking about the way they were racially abused, you don't want to now start saying but 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 this that and the next thing. Um, so it was, uh, it, and also uh, this you can't. If we wanted to be uh, a court case, you know, then then that's what it should be. So the the rules do change. I think when you when you're in this kind of situation, and quite a difficult and fluid thing. Um, and and I I think they tried to keep it as 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 informal as as possible in the circumstances. Dumisian um, Zabez is a very warm man, you know, a very welcoming, friendly uncle of a, of a person. So uh, you know you couldn't be intimidated by him, but um, Sandile July was pretty sharp and 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 quite aggressive and and so kind of took some of the warmth out of the room if you like, um, and I think you know and 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 uh, it 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 was an odd dynamic. I, some people struggled to be comfortable there, I think. Um, and the other side of it is that a lot of the people who were accused um, and uh, did not appear. Uh, you know, some of them sent affidavits, like Mark Boucher. Graham Smith, um, but it would have, I think, made it a much rounder and richer um, experience if if they did take the opportunity to to appear. Someone who did and and did his standing a great deal of good, a white person called Jacques Fall, 
who's a former acting chief executive of, of, of Cricket South Africa and, is, and heads up the Titans. And he went and he admitted, yes, we got this wrong, we got that wrong, we got that wrong. This is what we tried to do to fix it. And he just looks like a human being, you know, whereas if you send in an affidavit, you look like a lawyer's letter, which is not a good thing to look like. And, and I think that was an opportunity missed. Uh, you know, people should have trusted the process enough. And, and honestly, there was enough integrity in the process for you to trust it. Um, uh, as no matter what color you were. And, and I, that was a disappointment for me that not enough of the white people named went and took that opportunity to testify. I think uh, for a process that came about largely by accident, thanks to events in the global space, and also uh, which was kickstarted by someone who didn't stay too long, uh, you know, what was Cricket South Africa's sort of uh, incentive to like push through and go through the whole thing? Or was it mainly a player's thing? Uh, you know, if not for the players, would the process have just stopped at some point and nobody knows where it went ahead? What What do you think? Why do you think this went through? Uh, you know, and it went on for quite a while, actually. I think that the new board had quite a strong role to play in, in pushing it through because basically the, the new board inherited this idea and could have said, OK, what a great idea. Let's put it aside. But the new board chair is a man called Lawson Naidu, who's also in charge of basically defending the South African constitution and making sure that, you know, the rights that we, that are enshrined to all of us are at least, at least all of us have the opportunity to enjoy them. So I, I think it was quite a strong moral imperative on his part to push it through. And there was also, it was budgeted for was the other thing. It, it ended up going over budget, but there was budget for it. And I think that they realized if they didn't do it at this point, that this would continue to come up in small bits and pieces for many, many years to come. And so it's much the same as when they released the Mark Boucher charges in the middle of a series. It was leaked, but they also chose to release it or they chose to charge him in the middle of a series it was because like, there's no point waiting any longer. We've waited 30 years to deal with racism. We can't wait longer. So let's just do it now. And I think that's why it happened. And so, you know, extending on that point, I mean, given given what came up about Boucher and uh, Smith and, you know, uh, irrespective of, and, and given the fact that they are in such influential positions and uh, did it, were, they, were their jobs even, I mean, was it even tenable for them to continue with their jobs or is it the case to be made that, fine, they're good at their jobs, but given this and given what has happened, we need to go forward and basically, you know, take a call on whether they're going to be at their jobs or not. I mean, it does seem that there was a press release put out wrongly, it seemed, that they would not continue with their jobs. But then we don't know. Um, but yeah, what's, what's your take on that, Telford? Just purely but what you've read, then do you think it's tenable? Um, with Smith, I find it quite odd that he should be, that people should be calling for his head on the basis of, of racism, because I, there's... I can't see any evidence of of, of Smith presented evidence of, of of racism committed by Graham Smith. So I, I don't know where that is. With Mark Barcher, we do have the whole Paul Adams situation. Um, again, there's nuance there, and I'm not trying to contextualize racism. But you know, Barcher was part of a team singing a stupid song. It wasn't some kind of race racist insult spat in Paul Adams's face. You know, you weren't you weren't telling him his brown shirt is a bad thing. It was, and and it's wrong on on so many levels. Um, but of course, Mark Boucher is the coach of the team. Can he continue? 
Um, it, that really does depend on what Mark Boucher, I think, is doing now to atone for those things and, and be a better person. Because the simple reality is, is that you, you struggle to find a, a white person in South Africa who has not or still is racist in some way or another, subliminal, whatever. Um, I know we've had the whole drama at Yorkshire, but, you know, in England, Britain irritates me on so many levels. These are people who tell us, we ended slavery. It's like, uh, <laughs> didn't you also kind of invent the, the Atlantic slave trade, you know? So there's a lot of denial, I think, in the way that, that English cricket and has, 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 has tackled this whole thing. And like, oh, my goodness, there's racism in English cricket. Who would have thought, you know? And, and, so, and I think there's a much more honest thing, way of doing this in South Africa, quite honestly. I do think Mark Batcher does, something needs to be done. He should be punished in some other way. There has to be atonement. Do I think he needs to lose his job? From what we know now about him, if it's the Paul Adams, if it's only the Paul Adams thing, no, I don't think he needs to lose his job because of that. Um, but if there are other things, there's there's suggestions of of his relationship with Enoch Inque, um, which was not South Africa's former assistant coach, was a very you've got to have that guy around. He's got all the skill and expertise, and and that has broken down. Now, if that is Boucher's fault and it's that comes down to a racial thing, then that's a bigger question. Um, so it's it's in the balance right now. Um, I, I, I do. I think Mark Butcher should continue as coach. Yes, right now, and what we know of the whole thing, um, I think he probably should. If it gets bigger and it gets worse, then then no. Um, and um, that's where I am on that. With Graham Smith, I can't see the racism connection. You know, nobody has made that clearly. So that's where I am on Graham Smith. Uh, with the Smith thing, I was, uh, you know. Read that, referring to the time when in the 2012 period, 2010-2012 period, when uh, quite a few players were, have spoken about. But yeah, again, it's it's a gray area. It's not black and white there. No. Yeah. Unlike most racism things, it's not black and white. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those, do you, are you largely in agreement? Uh, I don't I, know. I, I just think that... Look, I think the hearing has to happen. And I think, I, I hope it will be available in some form, not just to us as media, but also to the public, because this has been such a publicly um, out there kind of process. So I think first the hearing needs to happen. I, I can see the argument from both sides, because I think a lot of people of color feel as though somebody who engaged in, what shall we call it, racial conduct, uh, implicit bias, and, and all those types of things like a Mark Boucher and potentially like a Graham Smith. And remember, he's not only charged with um, not wanting to work with black management, which is untrue. So Graham Smith's one of the, Graham Smith hasn't been charged yet. But when when there is some sort of, whether it's an arbitration or whatever's going to happen with him, it's not just that he didn't want to work with black management, which is easy to disprove because he currently works with black management. There are also some issues about the Tommy Tolakile selection back in 2012, which I think needs to be looked into a little bit more. And potentially there'll be something coming around team culture. And, and that is, I think, a valid thing. So I think our, our men's teams specifically have got this very old boys club, toxic masculine type of environment that needs to be interrogated and hopefully kicked to the curb. But that's why I say I think I can see the argument on both sides here. You're saying I don't want somebody who has engaged in racially biased conduct in charge of what should be a representative team. At the same time, Mark Boucher is a hell of a good coach who many players of color have celebrated and have credited with helping them, Lugian Gidi, Fahan Behadin, 
it sounds to me that to an extent Temba Bavuma has said some complimentary things about him, in addition to white players who've said complimentary things about, about Boucher. And so, you know, what do we do with this expertise and cricketing knowledge? We don't do we kick it to the curb because of racism? Or or do we say that there's racial bias in probably every person and most definitely a lot of white South Africans, if not all of them? And there's racial bias in me as well. There's racial bias in all of us. This is how we were, this is how we were were socialized. And I, maybe what we need to do is ask, can Mark Boucher recognize his blind spots? So when, you know, and, and to me, what I find really striking is when you look at the circles that these guys move in, they move in very upper class elite circles where there are very few people of color. And so they're not really getting exposed to a social circle and a life situation where you know people of color other than your maid or the person who, who mows your lawn. And I think that is really strange in diverse South Africa, where 85% of the population is black African, that the only black African people you know are people who are doing sort of work for you or who you work with, that you haven't cultivated a diverse group of friends. And that then maybe impacts on the way that you can man manage or people manage. So I think that that needs to be considered. And what we're weighing up here is can racial bias be worked on? Because I don't think it can be overcome. And what level of racial bias are we willing to tolerate? And maybe this is going to give us some measurement. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really nuanced and answer that everyone can ponder about. Um, <clears throat> one last point, just to last question, just to round it back to cricket. Uh, you know, with the SJN hearings and with everything that's happened over the last few months and with the cricket that South Africa is now, you know, had a successful test series and one day series against India. I wanted to get an idea of what you two, you know, if you can tell me a bit about the whole uh, policy that South Africa have followed for many years now, the, the policy for selection, uh, you know, which uh, the affirmative policy of picking certain number of players. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask is that, is this, um, you know, when, is there like a large number of these players who are being spotted and then given scholarships to study in these elite schools by which they then develop into these really good players? Or uh, is there also this much more wide grassroots level development that's happening across the board, across geographies, um, you know, uh, across the class lines and race lines is what I meant, um, that the policy has also helped? Can you tell me a bit about that? It's it's probably a bit of both. I mean, there is that very strong school system, and and for a long, quite a long time now, the schools have gone out of their way to to darken the complexion of of the student body, essentially, um, uh, and 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 that has happened and quite successfully. And the uh, and the schools are also quite conscious of of the street cred that comes with you know having uh, talented black players in in, in your school, um, and and so that is that's a strong culture now. Yes, cricket has done a lot. Um, you know, there's been a development program for years and years and years, which which found Makayantini, for instance, um, and and, um, and 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 it's gone through stages, and and it's quite a sophisticated thing now with pipelines and hubs and this and that and whatnot, which I'm not going to pretend to understand completely. Uh, but you know, the, that there is there's a the, and and you know, people like Fidoz and I we criticize CSA a lot. But when you when it, and that's for their decisions and their policies and all their board decisions and things like that. But when you actually look at the people who are working there, there's some really good people doing really good work. 
um, on things like race and how do we, you know, make this a better game for all South Africans. So th there's a lot of effort going in, a lot of money being spent and a lot of effort. And, and as far as I can see, uh, it, all of it is sincere. This is there's not window dressing. This is like, how do we do this properly? So yes, it's a it's a kind of you know public private kind of thing with the schools doing their bit and cricket doing its bit. But of course, you know we're still stuck in that South African reality where if if you're black, chances are you've got to spend money on other things besides a pair of cricket boots. Um, so there's those kinds of things which come feed into it as well. So cricket can be doing as good a job as it likes, but the wider world around it needs to be doing as good a job. I know that's a big fluffy answer, but that's what I have in it right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, any final thoughts for those on this to wrap up? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't want to kind of sound too negative about things, but what we really need in this country is for our economy to, to get better in order for other things to get better. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to hesitate a bit here, but I'll make the Zimbabwe type comparison in that when we got to a point of hyperinflation and eventually dollarization and then more hyperinflation, and, and that's, this is not even taking politics into it. This is just looking at the economic situation. Cricket became unsustainable financially. And it collapsed, basically. And it's kind of now like crawling along. I, I don't think South Africa will ever get to that point. But I do think that we need the economy to start doing better so that we can have more sponsors. And if we, and then also you need Cricket South Africa to actually act in ways that will attract sponsors. So that might take as long as the economy, maybe. And then eventually you'll get to the point where the two can work together. In terms of development, you know, we... Our elite school system, much as we criticize it, and I think there is a huge amount of things wrong with it, not least that that is where this toxic masculine culture gets built. But that is still a very, very good education system and their facilities are impeccable. And so if we can get more kids into schools like that, I guess without uh, ex expecting them to assimilate to these very odd notions of culture, and again, that'll take a big culture shift, then we will get more professional sports people or more professionals in all industries, really, coming through that will have had really good educations. But I don't think that our school system is going to survive for, you know, to the extent that it is because it's becoming very expensive if you want to go to a private school. And at the same time, it's like nobody really cares about basic education in this country, which is a whole nother discussion. So I, I don't know. I think we might get through the next kind of year or two or three or four or ten on the system. And then at some point, you know, we'll have to have another moment of reckoning and the team will lose a lot and they'll slip down to number 10 on the rankings. And by then I hope I'm retired because I'm not going to do the cycle over and over again. Well, we, I mean, yeah, let's not think too far ahead. We're still in January for those. So there's time for that. Uh, but uh, yes, um, thank you. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I will link the articles that, um, you know, some of the articles we've discussed here, but I'll also link their uh, Twitter handles and their pages on their respective websites. Please read them. I really, really appreciate uh, both Firdos and Telford because they don't shirk away from talking about uh, uh, the politics in play while they're also talking about cricket. Uh, they are fully uh, cognizant of the fact that the game cannot be played in a vacuum and there's a lot going on. So, yes, please um, read them. And thanks again. Uh, thanks a lot for sparing so much time. All good. Thanks, Sid. Great. Thanks, Sid. I'll pop in to say hi and bye. India have won the test match.
India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild.